0: I have the privilege of uh, introducing our guest preacher for this afternoon, um, and it's Todd miles. Todd is a professor, a longtime theology professor at Western Seminary, so I get to work with him. Um, that's another privilege that I have. He's also an elder, longtime elder at Hinson Church, which is kind of a uh, sister church of ours or big brother church of ours in some ways. <laughs> uh, but Todd loves jesus he loves the bible he loves the church and um, i think we have a feast ready for us so todd thank you for doing this on short notice um todd i think we invited him a couple weeks ago to do this tonight so thanks todd all right if you have a bible would you open it to revelation revelation chapter 5. While you're turning there, of course, Revelation chapter five comes right after Revelation chapter four, so you should be able to find that pretty easily. Last, last book of the Bible, last book of the Bible. While you're turning there, let me give you greetings from Hinsdale Church, Western Seminary, of course, uh, where where I work, and uh, at our gathering this morning, uh, the, the, we we prayed for 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 this this gathering here. So. Uh, John, uh, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, an eyewitness of the things of which he writes through vision, uh, writes by inspiration of the Lord in verse 9, I need a bigger font Bible, verse 9 of Revelation, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Would you pray again with me briefly? Uh, Lord, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Josh uh, told you a little bit uh, about me. Um, I, I, do, I, I do serve as an elder at Hinson Church, and I, and I live right next door to Hinson, actually, which puts me right in the heart of Hipsterville in Portland. But the first thing I need to tell you about myself is really more of a confession. I am not a hipster. Now, for, for many of you, you might not have realized that. Oh, hey, here's someone who comes from Southeast Portland, right in the middle of Hipsterville. Of course, you have to be a hipster if you're going to live in Hipsterville, but uh, no, that's actually not the case. I'm living proof of that. I'm living proof of that. And it's, it's true that while I live where I live, uh, my confession to you is this, I am really a fraud, a pretender, a, a squatter, if you will. I, I, I live under the constant threat that the cool police are going to come knock on my door at any moment and say, Todd, we're on to you. You don't belong here. And I'll have to just say, you're right. You're right. Thanks for letting me live here as long as you did. Now, for, for probably most of you if, you, if you know what you're looking for, you would recognize right off the bat that I don't in any way act like a hipster. I am not a fan of beer, I, I loathe coffee, and I have no desire whatsoever to get on a bike, much less a skateboard. But behavior is not near as important as looking the part. If you, Again, if you're looking at me, you know I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't look anything like that. that is, I, I don't bear the marks. I don't bear the marks of a hipster. For example, I'm absolutely incapable of growing a beard. I mean, this is like three or four days growth for me, right? Can't... Can't do it. My only body piercings that I have, they derive from the Legos that I step on every morning when my kids don't pick up the living room. Uh, Short of the self-delivered ink stains on my own fingers, I have no artwork on my body at all. And I haven't been able to think up an inscription that I want on my body for the next 25 minutes, let alone the 25 years. And even if I were to come up with such a message, I mean, look at my arms, they're so skinny, it would have to be an abbreviated memo at best, right? So, so behavior and marks. Behavior and marks are the telltale signs of authenticity. Self-attestation, I could have stood up here and said, I'm a hipster, but, but I don't act the part, I don't look the part at all, and both those things are really important. And in our fickle world, where beauty is in the eye of the beholder, It is really difficult to meet expectations. It's nearly impossible to do so when the stakes are really high. And what about the stakes of, say, something like savior of the world? Where no one really knows what they're looking for, they just know they need something. How might a person measure up? And that's what we're going to talk about today we're gonna look at two different royal entries of Jesus. The first one very briefly, the second one in a much more extended way. And, And in the first one, we're going to see that the people's Messiah, Israel's king, comes into Jerusalem with much pomp and circumstance, but there is confusion because the people didn't know what they were actually looking for. And then in our second one, it's going to become obvious what we ought to have been looking for all the time. So this morning, if you're here, you you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, maybe. I would like for you to consider the question of your greatest need. To quote the great theologian, Bonnie Tyler, if, if, if you're holding out for a hero, what might that hero look like? Do you know what you're actually waiting for? And if he showed up, would you recognize him? If you don't even think you would recognize him, but you think there's got to be someone out there who knows what I'm going through, who, who, who can actually bring some, some, some reconciliation to my life w- with myself, with others, and with God. Who might you listen to? Who might you listen to who can point you in the right direction? Who's gonna, who has the authority and wisdom to bring clarity? For, for, for the rest of us here, you, you, you do understand yourselves to be Christians, but my invitation is pretty much the same, pretty much the same. How might better understanding of both yourself and your Savior, a clear vision of Jesus and how he is worshiped right now by people who are basically created, creations if you will, who were created to worship how might that lead you to better service now and better worship now so uh, we 're going to start in Luke chapter nineteen, Luke chapter nineteen, and what we 're going to find out here is that outside of heaven, praise is imperfect out, outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. Uh, Luke chapter nineteen so if, if keep your finger in Revelation chapter four and five, but in Luke nineteen this is getting towards the end of Jesus's ministry. It's, it's right in the, the beginning of kind of the last week of, of, of his life before the, the crucifixion. And he, there, there is a royal entry of Jesus' into Jerusalem. And, and it's set up this way. I'm, I'm just going to read it to us here. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, "Uh, uh, what were the magic words? Oh, yeah, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it, (laughs) What, what Luke doesn't tell us. And it worked. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So... Jesus is making this entry into Jerusalem, he is the true king of Israel, he is the, uh, the son of David who's destined to rule and the disciples we find are behind this action. There's a multitude we're, said, we're told of them, they are praising God, quote, for all the mighty works that they had seen. And if you were a follower of Jesus during that time for any period in that three year window. You knew that Jesus' ministry had been one continuous stream of mighty deeds. It both demonstrated Jesus' right to be king of the kingdom, but it also brought a real foretaste of the kingdom. In Jesus, you had this beautiful combination of word and deed integrated together in a manner that has never been seen since. How did that work? What was it they had seen? Well, we could go back to the Old Testament and look at all the messianic prophecies, but the the lame walked, the dead were raised, the sick were healed, the demonized were exercised, the hungry were fed, and the poor had good news preached to them. Now, all of that, as I said, had been anticipated by the Old Testament prophets, that when the kingdom came, it would be characterized by such things. And so Jesus, from start to finish, had demonstrated his kingly worth and he had done it by doing the exact things that had been prophesied of the Messiah. Verse 38 that we read, this praise of Jesus, it indicates that Jesus, he should have been welcomed. He should be welcomed as a leader, an agent of God. And of course, he's more than just an agent or a leader. He is the king of kings. Peace and joy are proclaimed as Jesus rides in triumph, into Jerusalem. Peace and joy, just like at his birth. There's almost a peace and joy proclamation bookends. Remember that peace and joy, what the angels proclaimed at at the birth of Jesus. And and we're we're left to to conclude that Jesus' ministry has been ordained by God. It is a good thing, and it is good that the King is among them. But, in And here's the the horrible but. I mean, don't you hate it when you're talking about Jesus and then there's a but. (laughs) But we see the excitement about Jesus. It's not unanimous at all, is it? The Pharisees are clearly concerned about this, the messianic confession that they were hearing from the multitude of disciples. And they sought to quell the fervor. We don't know exactly why. It's not clear whether they thought the praise was inappropriate. Maybe they thought it was blasphemous maybe it just wasn't politically wise. They were, Jesus and the disciples were rocking the boat of a tenuous situation with Rome anyway. For whatever reason, they order it stopped and they instruct Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Jesus' response to the Pharisees is remarkable, isn't it? No, I will not, he says. The disciples' praise is entirely right And proper in fact they are compelled by everything that is right to be praising me jesus seems to be saying in fact if if they were to stop so momentous is this occasion that the very rocks would take up the anthem have any of you been to israel before there's a few rocks okay that, that would be pretty remarkable that'd be pretty remarkable it'd be loud and wonderful Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees is very clear, I think. Even the inanimate creation can recognize the king when he shows up. Why can't you? Why can't you? Why not indeed? Within one week, the king's people would have their way, rejecting the Messiah, have him crucified on a Roman cross, Creation might have been able to recognize its Savior, but neither the Roman Empire, the power broker of the age, nor the people primed to receive her king, Israel, recognized him. And so we're we're left to wonder, what, what on earth went wrong? Why the confusion? Why the rejection and the malicious treatment of this itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, if if Jesus truly were king, the kind of king the disciples were proclaiming at any rate, why was his mission seemingly and so easily destroyed? What was to become of the kingdom that Jesus had been proclaiming throughout his entire ministry? Were the Old Testament prophets wrong? Would judgment not come upon the enemies of God through the Messiah? Would God's people never be vindicated? Would creation not be renewed? And then consider Jesus himself. He didn't look the part of a king, especially after Rome was done with him. His only regalia was like a cruel joke. Crown of thorns, purple robe. Make matters worse, Jesus would forever bear the ignoble marks of crucifixion the holes in his hands and feet and side. They bear testimony, not to his kingliness, not in the eyes of the world, but his rejection, his failure. Crucifixion scars are not royal marks. They're the marks of a common criminal by Rome's reckoning, marks of shame and embarrassment. What kind of king is Jesus? To answer that, let's turn to Revelation 4, Revelation 4 and 5. I'm not going to read all of Revelation 4, it's worth reading. Re- Re- Revelation 4 and 5 are really the t-ball of biblical preaching texts. I could just read it and go sit down, right? They're, they're, they're awesome. Um, Unfortunately for you, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk a bit about them here. Um, But to make sense of what kind of king Jesus is, we're going to go to another triumphal entry of his in Revelation 5. But before we read Revelation 5, we have to think about Revelation 4 because it sets us up for that chapter. And what we'll find in Revelation 4 is that in heaven, God is perfectly praised. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. Uh, in, in verses 1 and 2, John is issued into the throne room of God where, where God is seated on the throne, this throne signifying rule and judgment. And then in verses 3 through 5, we're getting given this kind of visual description of all the things around God without actually telling us what God looks like, which is rather strange. Um, God and the Holy Spirit are there. There's all sorts of dazzling jewels. There are 24 elders seated on 24 thrones that surround the throne of God. And there's debate about what these 24 beings are, these elders. Some believe it represents humanity. Maybe it's some special class of angels or heavenly beings. I don't know. I don't know what they are. But at any rate, they are remarkable beings who surround the throne of God. There's also a reference to the seven spirits of God in Revelation 4. I do think that that represents the Holy Spirit, the perfection of the Spirit, who resides with God as God before the throne of God. And then it gets even weirder after that in Revelation 4. There are four strange beings who are covered with wings and eyes, and so, okay, Josh mentioned I'm a theology professor, and so you might say, oh, the theology, professor, what are these beings? What are they? Let me tell you the three most important words in all of theology. I don't know. I don't know what these, thing, what these creatures are. Um, but I know they're awesome. I know they're awesome. And I suspect that the eyes that they're covered with, it's kind of a creepy picture if you think about it. But I think it, it brings a, a comfort. These, these beings are keeping eternal unrelenting vigil over all of the created order. But as weird as these beings are, John is not caught up in what they look like as much as in what they say. He, he's never seen beings like this and so he has to resort to simile. You almost get the feeling, it's, it's like you know the, the angel, the messenger tells John, Write down everything you see, and it's like, I don't even know what these things are called. Shut up and write, right? And so he's like, and then I saw a being, it was like this, and it kind of reminded me of that, and this and that. But he doesn't have to resort to simile when it's what these beings are saying. In unceasing praise they proclaim holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then those four beings who are created to praise God are joined by the 24 elders who cast their crowns before the throne of God proclaiming worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So let's pause just for a moment to consider the nature of praise in heaven. Here God is praised for who he is, his character and his essence, as well as his role of creator. God, we're told, is the one who was, is, and is to come. He is the eternal self-existent one. He always has been, he is right now, and he forever will be. What's emphasized is his eternality and his self-existence, his independence. He needs no one or nothing else. He brings everything to the table that he could ever possibly need, and he is dependent upon no one whatsoever. And we might think, oh, Todd, are you saying that God doesn't need me? No, he doesn't. God actually does not need you at all. And, and I know for, for a second, if we're thinking wrongly, we think, well, I kind of like being needed. It gives me significance. But in God, is that what you want? It is vitally important that God be independent. We're told in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, is, that tells us one very important theological lesson. We call it the creator-creature distinction. It's this. God is God and you are not. And you might think, well, that's pretty obvious. It's right there there in verse 1. Well, walk through my neighborhood and talk to people for a while, right? And you go, oh, maybe it's not so obvious that God is God and, and we are not. Maybe it's not so evident. But I think I might want God to need me. I think I might want that. Would we know what we were asking for if we wanted God to need us? That would mean that he was dependent upon us to meet some sort of need in him that he would otherwise lack. But if that were the case, then I'm not quite sure how he could actually be God, and it would also mean that he could not love us unconditionally. But his love for us would always be conditioned on whether or not we were meeting this need that he had to have filled. Do you realize that God's utter independence of you is what enables him to love you unconditionally? His love for you is never, ever based upon you bringing whatever you can to the table, but is always based fully, completely on his character, which never changes, and his promise that he always keeps. And that is a happy place for us to be, a happy place for us to be. And so it's right that in heaven he is created for these things. He's praised as creator, the one who exercises sovereign governance over all that he has made. As we move into chapter 5, we're set up with this. God is on the throne. He's being praised by creatures who were created to praise, and everything is just as it ought to be it doesn't get any better than that until you get to the next verse the first verse of chapter 5 and what we find in verse uh, in chapter 5 is that in in heaven only the perfect are praised in heaven only the perfect are praised in verses 1 through 4 in contrast with of chapter 5 in contrast with chapter 4 Where everything is as it's supposed to be, verses 1 through 4, it's like, heaven, we have a problem. Look at at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. I like that, a strong angel. What, in contrast to all the wimpy angels in heaven? I don't even, but I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or to look into it. So everything is, supposed, is as it's supposed to be until you get to the scroll, and then everything falls apart for John. What is the scroll? If, if we were to keep on reading into chapter 6, we would find that the scroll contains God's redemptive plan and the future history of the cosmos. <laughs> That's all. The the scroll contains, if you will, the balancing of the scales of justice, the vindication of God's people, the judgment on the wicked. Think of it this way. Contained in the scroll is the definitive divine answer to the question that has buggered humanity ever since the fall, how long, O Lord? How long? It is the definitive divine answer to everything that is wrong with this world. The definitive divine answer to everyone who has ever wondered if, God, are you not paying attention? Are are, are you not watching? Are you not keeping score? Don't you even care? For all of you who have experienced tragedy or abuse or injustice, which I'm sure would be everyone here, We're all touched by the fall. But if you've experienced any of those things and you've cried out to the Lord wondering, God, why don't you speak from heaven? Why don't you do something? How could you let this happen? Don't you even care? You need to know that based on what we're going to read in Revelation 5 is that God does see. God does know. He does care and He is keeping score. He's going to make everything right as only He could. You will be vindicated. God will be glorified and honored. And His answer, an answer that will satisfy every question of justice that anyone has ever had, it's written on that scroll. And when the seals are broken, it initiates it. But, so here's the but again, there is no one worthy to open the scrolls. No one is worthy to execute the justice of God, it appears. No one is found who can initiate this divine judgment. And did you notice it's not for lack of applicants or a thorough search. Where did they look? Everywhere, in every place, in all time they looked, it was an exhaustive search and there is no one who is worthy to initiate the justice of God. No one who lives or has ever lived is qualified, no one, absolutely no one. And it's here that we're confronted with a sobering truth, we may want for God to execute his justice, how long O Lord, aren't you watching, why don't you do something? But that justice of God, that righteous justice of God, it is too white hot for us to handle. We might, God, why don't you get serious about sin? Oh, God is very serious about sin. He's more serious than we can ever imagine. We we might want for God to deal with sin, but God's war on sin is going to cut right through your heart. Not one of us is worthy to open the scroll. Not one of us is worthy to even peek into it, we're told. And that's why John breaks. He's just been given a view of the throne room of God where everything is exactly as it should be. He sees God in His holiness seated on the throne hearing perfect praise of the Holy and Sovereign Lord, and yet confronted with the question, when, oh God, will you put everything to rights? The answer appears to come back, for lack of a qualified man, never. God, when will you vindicate the righteous? When will you honor your name? There's no champion, so I'm sorry. Now, John, he's not naive, he doesn't have some like Pollyanna-esque view of the world. He he knows the depth of injustice, the vileness of human depravity. He, he knows that it has to be answered by God. It must be answered by God. The hope of humanity and creation is that God will act, but there is found no one worthy to initiate that long sought after divine action. And it's too much for John, especially after what he's just seen. It's too much. And he breaks. And then verse 5 comes. Verse 5 is when heaven's hero is found. Read with me. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes. Yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here, the fulfillment of promises made to the patriarchs 1,800 years before the time of Christ. One would come from the tribe of Judah, one like a lion, royal, majestic. He would rule with a scepter that he would never, ever lose. He's the root of David, the fulfillment of promises made to David a thousand years before the time of Christ. A member of David's line, a son, would become king and he would rule forever, David was promised. And and then we're told in this verse, chapter 5, verse 5, that this hero, this champion, is worthy precisely because he has conquered. Yes, this is the kind of hero we've been waiting for, a conquering king. Surely, this is the kind of hero that the people of Israel were waiting for, the Pharisees were waiting for, someone who, quite frankly, would make that peaceful, itinerant preacher from Nazareth seem wanting. This is the kind of king the Pharisees were looking for, surely the kind of king who wouldn't be tripped up by political machinations in a religious conflict. But then we get to verse 6, and we have to ask, who in heaven is this? Who in heaven is this? Look at verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John is greeted by two surprises here. The first is that he's expecting a lion because that's what was announced, and he turns and he sees a lamb. But not just any old lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The Lion of Judah is in fact simultaneously a lamb. Not a lamb in terms of power, but in terms of sacrifice. How could this be? How could the one worthy because he had conquered, remember that's what was announced of him, weep no more, John. Behold, the king who has conquered, he is worthy to open the scrolls. How can a sacrificial lamb, a crucified lamb, be a conqueror? And here we learn exactly what kind of hero was necessary to save God's people, usher in his kingdom. The people had expected a kingdom restored to Israel, they had expected a political solution to their problems, they had expected judgment on the enemies of God, they would expected vindication for the people of God, and they had expected this because that's what the scriptures taught. (laughs) They they were right to expect those things, right? So, okay, but I thought you were going to explain why the confusion. Well, for creation to be renewed, for the curse to be lifted, for all the ruling principalities to be brought into subjection, sin had to be dealt with. More importantly for us, For there to be any kingdom of God, which is like God's people in God's place under God's rule, for there to be any people of God, our sin had to be dealt with. Our sin had to be judged. I mean, think about it. God could have brought about his kingdom without a cross, but who would be a part of it? Not you and not me. It'd be a kingdom of one person, the king. And that's not much of a kingdom. That which lifted the curse and brought about the subjection of God's enemies is the same self-sacrificial act that brought about redemption and ransom of his people. And of course, that's the gospel that you hear preached here Sunday after Sunday, right? That Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Our sin has alienated us from God, but God in his kindness substituted for us in the person of his son who became a human just like us but also just like god died for us died for us that we might live again of course the promise of the gospel is that anyone who repents of their sin and believes the gospel that is confesses their sin believes in their heart god raised him from the dead confesses with your mouth that jesus is lord you can be saved. You hear that Sunday after Sunday here, right? And if you want to talk more about that, I can talk with you afterwards, or one of the elders here will be happy to talk with you about it. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 and 8, we find in heaven Jesus is praised because Jesus is God. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This lamb of God, the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, he approaches the throne and he takes the scroll from the strong right hand of God. And then John gets a second surprise. The heavenly beings who had been giving praise to the one seated on the throne, they fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. And friends, I think this is the strongest argument in all of the Bible for the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, why would I say that? We have to believe that these creatures, whatever they are, they probably have a pretty good theology of worship, right? You would think if there are any beings anywhere in the cosmos who knows what proper worship is, it would be these four beings and the angels and the elders seated around the throne. They know who they're supposed to worship and who they are not. If there are any beings in heaven or on earth who are committed to monotheism, who understand the implications of worshiping the wrong being, don't you think it would have to be them? And yet in the presence of God the Father seated on the throne and the seven spirits of God, that is the Holy Spirit, these beings, almost as it were, turn from the throne and fall down before the Lamb of God. Now I would submit to you that God on earth has been very patient with idolatry and blasphemous worship but I would think he's not very patient in his own throne room. And if Jesus Christ is not fully deserving of worship precisely because he is in fact God of gods, king of kings, lord of lords, then you would expect the elders fell down before the lamb and ferocious fire erupted from the throne consuming the blasphemous elders. Of course, you don't get that, right? You just get more and more praise heaped up and more and more beings join in. Why? Because Jesus Christ is precisely all that. He is God of God. King of kings, Lord of Lords. So, here I, I'm preaching to the choir here. Don't take worship of Jesus lightly. Don't take it lightly. When when you sing here on Sunday afternoons the kind of songs that we've been singing, it's not just the precursor to the sermon. It's not a formality to endure. Not like that. No, we are joining the heavenly hosts in participation of a transcendent and weighty activity. What we do here when we gather matters precisely because of what we confess. You recognize that if Jesus Christ is not fully God, we have already committed horrific blasphemy this afternoon. But if Jesus is worthy because he's divine, then our praise is just, it's right, it's orthodox, and it's true. It's our duty and it is our delight. And then think about the nature of heavenly worship, what we see here as well. We saw that the the lion was worthy to take the scroll because he had conquered. But what exactly had he done? He was worthy precisely because he had been slain. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplishes the salvation of peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what the rest of the praise points out, doesn't it? That promise made to Abraham so long ago that all the nations would be blessed through you is made good and kept in Jesus. And then the praise is just heaped up, right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ has all of the things necessary and he has them exceedingly so. Magnificently so. So it seems to me that we should model our worship here on earth after the worship that's found in heaven. How much of worship here devolves into being about us, meeting our needs? Have you ever found yourself leaving a worship service complaining about, I don't know, the music or that long-winded guest preacher who never sat down? It D- just didn't do anything for me. What did you think of the worship? What do you think of the worship? Eh, it was okay. It didn't do anything for me, though. Maybe then asking each other on the way home what we thought of the worship, maybe we should ask, I wonder what the Lord thought of my worship today. What did the Lord think about how we gathered and sang and prayed and listened to the preaching of God's word? And then worship in heaven focuses on who God is, right? God is creator, God is savior, and God is judge. Our worship should be like that too. Theology is really the language of worship. Did you know that? Theology is the language of worship. You might be thinking, oh, what, Todd? Am I supposed to go to Western Seminary to take theology classes from you so I can worship better? Yeah, <laughs> yes, you are, absolutely. It, no, you, you don't have to. You'd be welcome to. That, that, that would be great. Um, but it, it's... It <laughs> That's why there's work done on crafting the service. Did, did you notice that we sang the Revelation song right before I got up here? That wasn't an accident. It wasn't like this supernatural work of God. Although he can do that. He can do that. But the pastors and elders are working to train all of you up in how to worship. In how to worship. Be cross-centered. That's my my last uh, 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 encouragement to you. Be cross-centered. Worship in heaven right now and forever is cross-centered. So I should be likewise. Apparently, heaven is never able to get over the cross. They're always just stunned by it. They're always stunned by it. Look what you did. And and not like, look what you did. No, it's jaw-dropping. Look what you did. Who would have thought that? Heaven is stunned at the lengths to which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit went to reconcile sinners like you and me to God. Why aren't we? Maybe our view of ourselves is higher than it ought to be. Maybe it's kind of embarrassing to think about what was necessary to actually save us. A small salvation, small salvation would need a small work, a small Savior. But our salvation is great and required a great Savior because of how great our need actually is. If you want to understand the love of God, look at the cross. If you want to understand the power and wisdom of God, look at the cross. If you want to understand how horrific our sin is, look at the cross. The cross of Jesus brings laser-sharp focus to the majesty of God, and it puts to death the lie that, yeah we're not all that bad. We just need a little help. So meditate on the cross. Meditate on the cross. You notice in the Gospels how the inordinate amount of me- space that is given to the last week of Jesus' life. And explore it. Explore it. If Jesus' death becomes the means by which he is granted the throne, then there is far more going on at the cross than just the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus sovereignly rules Because he was crucified and he rose from the dead. Jesus is going to recreate the cosmos because he was crucified and he rose from the dead. Jesus has defeated all the spiritual powers and principalities in the world because he was crucified and he rose from the dead. And one day he will return and execute judgment on all the wicked and vindicate all of his people that he has gathered for himself through compassion and mercy precisely because he was crucified and he rose from the dead. So so celebrate that. Celebrate that. Have you ever wondered, we, we celebrate the death of Jesus on Good Friday is what we call it. Good Friday. It's like the worst day in human history in terms of our achievement. We put the innocent son of God to death on a cross. What's good about that? Well, it is Good Friday, not because of what we did, but because of what God did through that. What God did through that. Good Friday is the most important day, the greatest day in all of history. Actually, the only thing that would make it better is if somehow Jesus got up from the dead. But of course he did. One way of celebrating the cross is is through the Lord's Supper which Josh is going to lead us through here in just a moment. It's, it's our way of remembering what Jesus accomplished at the cross. But you need to know that, that, that your destiny is not to be eating a little Dixie cup of juice and, <laughs> and some bread, which is better than those like COVID tablet things that we were eating. Weren't those dreadful? They just dissolved in your mouth like day-old manna or something, Right. The day is going to, it's, it's not our destiny to do this forever. This is rehearsal because the day is going to come when this Good Friday Supper is going to give way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The day will come when this activity of remembrance will give way to the recognition of sight because we will see the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how we'll recognize him? By his scars. They actually are the marks of our king. There's the great hymn, Crown Him with Many Thorns. Or <laughs> Crown Him with Many Crowns. Uh, we already did the Crown Him with Many Thorns part. Crown Him with Many Crowns. Crown Him the Lord of love. Behold His hands inside. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. We will see the scars of Jesus and we will recognize them for what they are, the marks of our hero, the marks of our great God and King and we will with joy fall down before him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are uh, stunned at the lengths to which you went to reconcile us to you. To defeat sin and death and all that war against you so definitively we are stunned at your grace and compassion and mercy we pray father that for those who don't know you that you would give them uh, a a perception of their need and a perception of their savior that you would call them to yourself we pray for us as well that we would be marked by people who see Jesus clearly not from a worldly perspective, not from a power broker perspective, but from your perspective, and that we would see in Jesus accurately not just all that we need, but who Jesus is. Bless us, please, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.